you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. It's in the Old Testament, so the front part of the Bible. If you've hit Psalms or Proverbs, you've gone too far. So, right before Job. Esther chapter 1, and we're going to be in verse 9 through 22 this morning. And the title of this sermon is Christ's Bride and Ahasuerus's. Esther 1, 9 through 22. Well, in our first sermon on Esther, uh, we learned a ton of background info on the book as a whole, and that the way to properly read Esther, or any other book of the Bible for that matter, is through a Christological lens, or through the lens of Christ. Understanding that Esther is part of the overall biblical storyline. And what is that biblical storyline? Creation, fall, promise, redemption, completion. Creation, fall, promise, redemption, completion. We learned that Esther in the storyline comes after the fall and in the midst of promise, looking forward to redemption. In other words, the author is asking the question, has God forgotten about his promise from Genesis 3.15? If not, where is he? The book answers these questions by showing that God hasn't forgotten his promise, that he's in fact all around us, often in mundane and seemingly insignificant moments of life. And that he's working to redeem and rescue his people, even shockingly when they rebel against him. We began our story with the first eight verses, seeing a powerful, prideful, pagan king, who by all human standards was great and sovereign. But we learned quickly that only God is great with a capital G. Ahasuerus, the human king in Esther, He planned a six-month party to show everyone just how great he was. But we learned in verse 8 that he was the emperor with no clothes. He he was trying to legislate every detail of his subjects' lives. He didn't have sovereign power. Only God is sovereign. Today, we'll see much of the same in verses 9 through 22. So here's where we're headed today. Now, I'm going to read the whole chapter, including the first eight verses, because these verses very much go together and kind of hammer the same point. But we're going to zero in on verses 9 through 20, 22. So let's dive into the text. This is the word of the Lord. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces... In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days, 
in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, and Mamukan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Okay, here's the plan. We're going to walk through these verses and make sure we understand exactly what happened here. And then we'll spend the bulk of our time comparing and contrasting these characters in their story with God. And these are two helpful questions to ask when you're studying any passage of Scripture. Number one, what does this passage say about God? And number two, what does this passage say about us? What does this passage say about God? 
And what does this passage say about us? All right. So, with that in mind, what's going on in this text? First, in verse 9, we're introduced to Vashti. Vashti is a Persian word that means the best. Most scholars believe that her actual name was Amestris, which was her Greek name. But she was favored by King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, and called Vashti, or the best. So the king has thrown a six-month party and a week-long after-party. The author of Esther has tipped his hand to us that the king isn't as great as he's made himself out to be. We learned last week that human power is fleeting. Vashti is also throwing a party for the women of the kingdom. But don't be mistaken here. This is still all about the king. Look at verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. This is still all about the king and his stuff. So, Queen Vashti's throwing a party for the women in the king's palace, and on day seven of partying, which is actually day 187, the king and all of his buddies are drunk. Shocker, right? The drunken king then commands for his wife to be brought from her party to his. And don't be fooled. This isn't a king who's proud of his wife and eager to introduce her to his friends. Not at all. It's not, you guys have to meet my wife. She's, She's such a great woman of character. No, that's not what's going on. He's drunk. And he's parading his wife in front of his drunk friends for show. He's already shown off all of his other possessions. And now he's to the pinnacle, his wife, who he clearly also sees as a possession or an object for his pleasure. Look at verse 11. She summoned, the text tells us, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Christopher Ashe rightly points out that consistent with all we know of the values of the world empire, It's all about appearances. There's no interest in character. This is how the world empire works. Now, remember that the first eight verses of this chapter were meant to display human power and then begin to undercut it. Here, we're in for more of the same. Look what Queen Vashti does in verse 12. She says no. She refuses. This all-powerful king isn't so powerful, is he? He rules 127 provinces, but he can't even rule his own wife or his emotions. He's embarrassed and angry. Can you imagine this scene? If it were happening today, Twitter would be absolutely blowing up. Hashtag Vashti refuses would be trending. One author insightfully notes here that the issue at stake here is whether or not the king can control the will of another human being. Of course, he could command that Vashti be brought in chains. He could coerce her. 
but it does not want to do that. He wants to demonstrate not only that he controls inanimate objects, but that he commands the will of another human being. And not just any old human being, but a conspicuously significant human being. A queen wearing a crown, submitting to his every whim. This he cannot do. The world empire has great power, but it cannot bend a human will. The king is drunk and he's ticked. So he calls in his wise men who know the times. <laughs> Unfortunately, these phrases turn out to be ironic, don't they? Then look at verse 15. The king asks these wise men, he says, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. <laughs> He's referring to himself in the third person. You can't make this up. And true to form, he's legislating again. Not only has he legislated drinking or not drinking at his party, now he's legislating even in his own marriage. What a guy. Then, one of these wise men, by the way, I love what Ian DeGuid says about these guys. He says, the ruling class of Persia is depicted not so much as the Magnificent Seven, but more like a Ahasuerus and the Seven Dwarfs. I love that. One of these wise men named Mamukin, he comes up with a soothing balm for the king's wounded pride. Essentially, he's saying, Oh, great and powerful king, don't worry. This isn't a you problem. This is a whole kingdom problem. We can't have this spreading to all the women of the empire. So they decided to make a royal order, and they broadcast it to the entire kingdom in every language. Brilliant idea, right? We don't want this getting out, so let's tell literally everyone about it. Behold the wisdom of man. Then Queen Vashti's punishment is that she's not allowed to come into the king's presence, which is exactly what she refused to do in the first place. Some of you are laughing. Good. That's what you're supposed to be doing. This whole section is meant to be ironic. We're meant to laugh at both the fleeting power and the fleeting wisdom of man. I love this about Psalm chapter 2 which is a messianic psalm. You have the nations raging and the kings of the earth setting themselves up against God and against his anointed, who is Christ. What's God's response to these raging and rebellious earthly kings? Psalm 2, verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. They rage against God. They plot against him. He laughs and sets Christ on the throne. Esther chapter 1 it is meant to drive us to the same place. We're meant to laugh at this earthly king. 
and to see the limited amount of his power and his wisdom in the face of God, who's in complete control. Do we understand this? Esther 1, and the whole book for that matter, is not a morality tale. I'll say that again. Esther chapter 1 and the whole book of Esther is not a morality tale. It would be so easy for us to, to make this sermon about not getting drunk. Yes, Ephesians 5, 18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. There's great and applicable wisdom from the Proverbs here. Proverbs 31, verses 4 and 5 says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. Getting drunk is a sin. Getting drunk and making decisions is a horrible idea. But that's not the point of Esther 1. It would also be easy to make this sermon about treating women better. Sin obviously led to more sin. The king's treatment of his wife is horrendous here. And we will hit this a little bit later on. But that's still not the main point of Esther 1. And I think this might be an okay moment to kind of sidebar for a little bit. A lot of you, when you read this story, are probably asking the question, I know I did, was Vashti good or bad? Was Vashti good or bad? There's no doubt that the king's drunken request was sinful. But was Vashti's response good or bad? Well, you're going to hate this, but we don't know. The text doesn't tell us whether Vashti was good or bad. Honestly, we don't even know why she refused to come. Some have suggested by reading extra-biblical history that the timeline here lines up with her being pregnant with the next king, Artaxerxes. That's very probable. Others have suggested all sorts of reasons that she said no. But the text doesn't tell us. And here's my point. I mentioned this last week. But throughout the book of Esther, there are a lot of unknowns. And unknowns are okay. We're really going to need to know that truth next week in chapter 2. Unknowns are okay. Vashti isn't mentioned past the second chapter. She's not meant to be the main focus of the book. If we get hung up on trying to analyze her actions too much, we've missed the point. Yet, with all of that said, her actions do play a part of God's sovereign plan, don't they? That's what we're meant to see and marvel at. God uses this moment, this marital spat, to begin the ball rolling in his plan to save his people. Isn't that wild? He uses moments that may seem insignificant to accomplish his purposes on a grand scale. Do you know that that's true in your life today as well? Moments that may seem insignificant to you. Sitting around a dinner table in discussion with your family. 
a decision to change a habit in your life, a trip to the grocery store. God is using these to accomplish his purposes. Now, then comes the question. But what Ahasuerus did, that was sinful. How does that square with God's sovereignty? How can these sinful moments be a part of God's plan? See this. While God isn't the author of evil, and he certainly doesn't cause sin, he does bring good from evil. Look at the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. Joseph's brothers try to kill him, don't they? They decide to sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt in Potiphar's house. He gets wrongfully accused and ends up in prison. God uses that via dreams to place Joseph in the, the service of the king himself. He collects all the food during seven years of plenty and then is able to feed people during seven years of famine. Then his brothers, who think he's dead, by the way, they show up. He reveals himself to them, and they're scared for their lives. Wouldn't you be? What does Joseph say to them? We read it earlier. Genesis 50, verses 20 and 21. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What, God meant, what, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. Same principle here in Esther. Was it good that Ahasuerus got drunk and sinned against his wife? No, it was sin. But God used it to eventually put Esther in place so that he could use her to rescue his people. Do you see it? Even more, this principle is on clear display at the cross of Jesus Christ, isn't it? I love Peter's sermons in the book of Acts that highlights this point. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Peter steps up and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you see it? In one sense... The death of Jesus was evil. Wicked and lawless men crucified him as an innocent man. They took the Son of God and ruthlessly murdered him. That's evil. Yet, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan, and it was the greatest good in the whole universe. What they intended for evil, God used for good. God can and does redeem horrible things that happen in this life. I don't know your story, 
promise you that this is true. Even when we don't understand it and may never understand it or never see the good that comes from it, this side of heaven. You may have been through something awful. Someone may have sinned against you in a major way. God can use it. He can redeem it. And this doesn't, I want you to hear this loud and clear, this doesn't in any way downplay your pain or the reality of sin. Sin isn't ever excused. But know for sure that God can bring good from it. And that one day, all things will be made right. There's hope, even in the midst of suffering. God can bring good from evil. This is not a morality tale. So, what else are we meant to see about God here? Again, the clarity comes in the contrasts. As we view this earthly king and find him wanting, we're meant to long for more. And we're meant to see this king as an antitype of God himself. So consider this. Ahasuerus is the exact opposite of God when it comes to justice. He's not holy or wise, Ahasuerus. There's no reconciliation whatsoever with he and his bride. He just dispenses his unjust wrath and he's done. Again, Christopher Ashe so helpfully reminds us that the empire of the world is not a place where we, sh we should expect consistency of justice. It is a place where arbitrary power is commonplace. Not so with God. God, as a contrast to Ahasuerus, is all holy. He would never make a drunken, rage-filled decision. Instead, all of his decisions perfectly holy and perfectly just. God's decisions are also wise. He sees the end from the beginning, and every decision he makes is the right decision. God is also a reconciling God, who thankfully offers us reconciliation through his son Jesus Christ. Ahasuerus is the exact opposite of God when it comes to justice. And that brings us to our next contrast. Ahasuerus has no grace, does he? With him, it was one strike and you're out. But here's the deal. With God, it's actually the same. Probably weren't expecting me to say that, huh? Here's what I mean. Look what God's word says in James chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. What's James saying? He's saying if you fail to keep God's law in even one point... Even if you keep the rest, you're guilty. And we know what Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. With God, it's one strike and you're out. And we're all guilty. 
But here's where God is different from Ahasuerus. He's merciful and gracious. But he doesn't look past our sins. Instead, he atones for them. The penalty for our sins is death. So God sent Jesus, his only son, to die in our place. That our penalty would be paid in full. For those who have turned from sin and trusted in him, praise God, there's forgiveness of sin. There's reconciliation to relationship with God. There's grace and mercy. Praise God that he's not like a Ahasuerus, right? A couple more brief truths. Ahasuerus is different from God in his justice. He's different from God in his grace. And in Ahasuerus, we're meant to see that only God has absolute authority. In Ahasuerus, we're meant to see that only God has absolute authority. Ahasuerus is the most powerful man on the planet. And yet, his own wife doesn't even obey him. Does he seem like a king who has everything under control? No. He doesn't. Contrast this with Jesus. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus is out on a boat in the middle of a crazy storm. And look at this. Mark 4, 39 through 41. He's asleep in the boat, by the way. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? He commands the winds and the sea and they obey him. He's completely authoritative. That's a God I can follow. And know that he has everything under control. Only God has absolute authority. Finally, while this chapter isn't about marriage, we can't help but see a couple of core truths related to marriage in the gospel here. First, in this episode, if you will, it displays the effects of, of the fall in marriage, does it not? Let's look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are all members of his body, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Is this, is this what we see going on between husband and wife in Esther 1? No. We see a husband not loving, sacrificing for, or cherishing his bride. We see a harsh, authoritarian husband who summons his wife for his own gain. Friends, do you see that Jesus is a better king and a better groom to his bride? Jesus cherishes the church and sacrificed for her. He also summons her to a feast known as the Messianic Banquet, where he, the groom, Jesus, will be at the head of the table in the kingdom of heaven. I love what Ian de Guide has to say here. He says, but when God summons his bride, the church, to his banquet, he does so not to expose her to shame, but to lavish his grace and mercy upon her. He doesn't force sinners to come unwillingly to his feast, but gently woos them and draws them to himself. We can see why Queen Vashti was reluctant to appear before Ahasuerus. But who would refuse such a wonderful invitation from God to experience life in all its fullness? There is nothing noble about refusing to appear in the presence of such a good and gracious God. On the contrary, it is the height of folly and ingratitude. If you're a Christian, be grateful for this groom and this king, Jesus. Look forward to the day when you'll feast, not just for 187 days, but forever with Christ, the groom. If you're not a Christian, realize this. Realize that the king and groom is summoning you to his feast and that you have a choice to make. You can joyfully obey him and spend eternity in his presence, or you, like Vashti, can be forever banished from him. Unlike Ahasuerus, he's good and he's a gracious king. Coming to him will be the greatest decision of your life. So come to him today. If you want to know what that looks like, I would love to talk to you. Rob would love to talk to you. Anyone in this room would love to talk to you. We serve a good and gracious king who's full of justice, who's full of grace, and who is completely authoritative. Praise God that he's not like a Hesuerus. Let's pray.